Welcome to Less Than or Equal, the podcast about pursuing equality in geekdom by celebrating the diverse in their accomplishments on the Relay Podcasting Network. I'm your host, Aline Sims, and today I'm joined by Andy Arthur. Andy, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. Me too. Who are you, Andy? I'll just start with an easy question. I always <laughs> do. Um, I'm a playwright. Um, I've been a playwright since I was 16. I also run a small theater company called Lost Girls Theater in uh, Miami. We're dedicated to the idea of a theater of wonder. So theater that sort of recaptures that sense of childhood joy that you had when, say, you went to the theater that incorporates puppetry, uh, music, dance, film, all the things that you can do live in a moment that you can't necessarily do on any one individual medium by themselves. So we're very interested in like what makes theater present and real in the moment. And we like fairy tales a lot. So, so that sounds like quite an undertaking. Like I, I think about yes. adult me and child Aline and <laughs> recapturing that sense of wonder is it, it's a pretty big task. How, how yeah. do you approach that? Um, well, we're just starting out. Um, so it's a little bit, it's been a little shaky. Um, what we're going to do, our first sort of major full production, we've been doing readings of short, uh, well, we've done readings of short plays. Um, we do have done readings of full-length plays that have sort of fit the theme. Um, we did uh, a reading, of, for example, of Raina Hardy's uh, play Glass Heart, which is a retelling of Beauty and the Beast um, and set in modern-day Chicago in a one-bedroom apartment. Um <laughs> Like stuff like that. Um, it's just like silly things like that. We did a play called Messenger Number Four, a reading of a play called Messenger Number Four by Will Snyder. Um, that all the great characters in Greek mythology are uh, um, in the same universe, and all the messengers belong to this corporation called Narrative Inc. And Messenger Number Four one day decides to quit his job, and he uh, the entirety of Western literature falls apart. Oh no! So, yeah, so it's it's fun stuff. It's really sort of trying to like invoke a sense of fun in in the narratives and the stories that we're telling. Um, the name comes from it's a playoff Peter Pan, but we're mostly women, so it's lost girls instead of lost boys. So how did how did this become a thing? I, did you just decide to do it, or was it a group of you? Like, what's what's the origin story of this group? Um, it's me and a uh, director, Katie Siegel, or her professional name's Catherine Siegel. And, uh, we were geeking out at a baby shower over Doctor Who. Oh, it as you do. Sounds good. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Right up my alley. Um, um, and so we were having some sort of an intense conversation about, it was a while back. So it was something about Matt Smith. Um, and we had just really had just met and um, we had done some stuff before 24 hour theater projects, but those things are so incredibly crazy that you don't really get to connect with someone. Mm -hmm. And out of the Doctor Who conversation came the sort of like, I would like there to be theater that makes me feel happy the way Doctor Who makes me feel happy. Um, and we started talking about stuff that we want out of our theatrical experiences. And they were very much on the same wavelength about that. And then she was like, well, we should just start a theater company. And we did. <laughs> so that's sort of how that happened. Okay, so what goes into starting a theater company? I have completely, like, I this is not my area at all. So do you, you just start with some people and a vague idea and run or? Yeah, we talk to a <laughs> lot of people, um, a lot of people who know nonprofit management more. Um, I have a nonprofit management day job, so that helps. Um, it took a lot of small building. Like, we've been doing this, like, that baby shower was probably, well, Mac is for the baby in question of the baby shower. So that baby shower is a long time ago. That was a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we're only now starting to like get up the first production. So that tells you it's not an easy, easy task. I'm finding like-minded people. Um, we did a lot of really boring paperwork. Um, if anyone who listens to this podcast needs help filing their 501c3 paperwork, I now know how that works. And it oh is, gosh. Yeah. Arduous. It's intense. Yes, it is arduous. Um, it's it's a lot of little things. It's registering with the state. It's filing. Like I'm writing a grant application right now for our first show. It's a lot of, there's a lot of work that goes into putting up stuff that you're excited about. 
Do you have a space or do you rent space or how does that component work? We're artists in residence at this really beautiful uh, place called the Darien Estate. It's this old 1920s era building. Um, uh, like, there was a cellar that was a rum runner cellar. Um, and so we're artists in residence there. So we can do stuff there that's smaller. Um, but we're going to have to rent an actual theater space for our first full production because that space just doesn't quite have what we need for what we want to do. For volume of yeah attendees? Volume of attendees, uh, technical support, like lighting. Just stuff, you know, stuff that you don't think about until you're like, oh, right, I need, I need to be able to see actors. That's helpful. Yeah, a little. <laughs> yeah, little. Candle lit. Yeah. So there would be a tight, there would be a space for that too. Now that I'm thinking about it, but <laughs> it's something like sleep no more. But even that's just nuts. So, so you you're at a baby shower. You you get this idea. You decide to actually do it, and like you're actually you're doing it. You know, maybe taking a little bit of time to do it, but. Like, can I just say that's pretty cool? Because I have a lot of ideas and I'm like, that'd be a really good idea. And then I never do anything with it. Thank you. Um, I think it's because there are two of us to hold mm. each other accountable that helps. Um, we also now have a company of actors that also hold each other like, hold <laughs> us accountable. So tell, like, so tell your good ideas to your friends and say, I would like to do this. And make sure your friends go, hey, have you done the thing yet? I'm depending on you to do the thing. <laughs> right. So what has the most surprising thing been as you've started to to get rolling and and grown to a point where like you have a production that you need a bigger space for? Um how much work involved and how hard it is for me personally to delegate some stuff I'm finding. It's sort of like that's been an interesting thing to navigate. Um so it's sort of, I don't want to say I'm being a perfectionist, but I'm probably being a perfectionist. <laughs> um, like, but it's like, I want to make sure the marketing gets done right. Yeah, I'm definitely mm-hmm. being a perfectionist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and just finding places in the ecosystem, um, because there's actually a lot of really cool geek-related theaters across the country. Um, Vampire Cowboys. I don't know if they would consider themselves this way, but I kind of consider them this way. The House Theater Chicago. Uh, um, oh, there's some groups out in San Francisco whose name I'm totally blanking on because, of course, I'm on a podcast and that's mm-hmm. where you blank. Um, and it's sort of like, but there's not a lot of that here in Florida. And so mm-hmm. it's sort of like people are like, wait, people do this elsewhere? It's like, yes. And then the geeky community is like, wait, wait, we can go to theater? There can be theater that's about, you know superheroes and whatnot so yeah I don't know of anything like that in my area so I'm I'm sad I feel like I'm missing Aww. out <laughs> where are you sorry I, I did not read that <laughs> oh no you're fine um I live in the Phoenix area I'm in one of the many suburbs of Phoenix um so we yeah. have a lot of desert um but when it comes to mm-hmm. things like theater and that kind of thing I mean we have things we have the opera, we have um, Arizona State University, um, you know, the the roving musicals come here. So, like, mm-hmm. we get the chance to see Broadway shows and that kind of thing. But in terms of, like, independent theaters, I, I'm not really aware of a, anything, really. Like, there's a comedy club, but nothing doing productions like this, as far as I know. And unfortunately, Phoenix is not one of those areas where I'd be like, yes, you should check out blah, blah, blah. I have no idea on that one. <laughs> I was hoping. Well, maybe, maybe someone will pipe up and say, hey, Aline, like, this actually exists, because I've had that happen, so. <laughs> Which is good. I'm sure there's all sorts of theater makers out there in Phoenix. I mean, I know Matt Lerman's out there, and I know he's a geek as well, but I don't, he helps art, he helps artists, like, become better at what they're doing, so. I'll ask, see if I'll find geeky theater for you. I would love to go. Mm-hmm. Um, because when we have company in town, it's like, I don't know what to do with you. And that would be a thing we could do. (laughs) Yeah. So you started as a playwright in your teens. Yes. And that is something you have continued with into adulthood. Yes. 
Um, I was originally an actor. I went to performing arts high school. I also uh, did a lot of stuff with a lovely but somewhat terrible community theater Shakespeare company. Um, some of the productions were great. Some of them were The Tempest Done as Gilligan's Island. Oh. Um, yeah. Which is just as good as you think that sounds. Um, and, <laughs> um, I was um, but stunned. The pe- yeah. The people involved were amazing. Like they were so lovely and supportive, but I played like every single male page role known to humanity. Um like I played all the messengers. I played Lucius and Julius Caesar. I played, you know, third spear carrier from the left and Cyrano de Bergerac. Um, and I just was, you know, I was going to say in a direct, you know, reversal of Shakespeare's plays themselves, you mm-hmm. played all the, the male played roles, all, played all the male roles. <laughs> um, Cause I was a very tall, awkward slightly fat young woman and there was just no other place to put me Um, and uh and because of that I was like I would like to play an actual female character I guess I will write myself one Uh. and so that's how I started writing um because there just was no real place for me um as an actor I didn't really fit the ingenue mold. I didn't really, I guess I could have been a character actor, but I would have need to, you know, aged into it as it were. Right. So So what plays did you, what types of plays, I guess, did you write then versus what you write now? Has that evolved a lot? Uh, It has. Um, The first play, folding play I wrote when I was in my performing arts high school was the most pretentious thing history of things but I kind of love it looking back on it um it was just like just so much it's the thing you do I teach playwriting high school students now and when they do this I'm like oh I remember being that kid (laughs) um it it had like everything jammed into one play Mm. um it was called the light of many distant suns and it was about a, a woman returning home after the suicide of her brother um feeling kind of suicidal herself and having this sort of touchy relationship with her mother and then um uh, but like Emily Dickinson was a character because she talked about her poems I had a holocaust survivor giving wisdom the homeless holocaust survivor that hung out on her bus stop giving wisdom yeah I did that terrible trope um I um what else her dead brother talked to her like there's just like anything I could throw into this play I threw into this play you got Um, it all out yeah, did it all at once. And then um, I haven't done that many tropes into one play ever since. <laughs> Though oddly enough, the most one of my more recent plays that I've written is about a woman returning home after the suicide of her father. And I'm like, wow, that, that's the same play, but I'm doing it as an adult now. Okay. Figuring <laughs> um, what that is. So... So what is, since you teach, um, mm-hmm. like I'm, I'm very interested because I, I grew up in a very small town, um, in an underprivileged community. So like the idea mm-hmm. of having someone who actually teaches a course on playwriting is, um, kind of fascinating to me. I'm like, wow, that's really mm-hmm. cool. Um, what, what are the, like, can you give like three major takeaways or three major like bits of advice for aspiring playwrights? Don't be afraid of terrible first drafts. Um, they're going to happen. You're going to hate it and you just need to push through it and work, work, work through and rewrite and it will get better. And don't be afraid of rewriting. Um, don't be afraid to put yourself out there as a playwright. And this is some of those things I would say, do as I say and not as I do, because I'm terrible <laughs> about putting myself out there as a playwright. Um, and one of the things I would love, um, well, back on putting yourself out there is be totally open in who you are and the art that you create. I see so many, less so with my students, because they're mostly, I teach at the local Magnet Arts High School. Um Um, And so they're mostly also actors, so they're a little bit less about this. But, like, I've seen so many of my colleagues, and I see so many local playwrights trying to contort themselves into something they're not. And it's sort of like, be who you are. And I've felt the need to contort myself to try to be more 
what people want. And it's just sort of, I am not, I am not Arthur Miller. I am not, I'm not particularly interested in certain types of stories that get told over and over again. I'm not particularly interested in stories of wealthy people, for example, like kind of get or in the sort of constantly done in large regional theaters. I'm not particularly interested in stories about men. Uh, telling them myself. I love seeing them, but telling them myself. I'm not interested in telling those stories because I don't really have, I don't, I don't really know that I, I just, there's so much of that already. And this is sort of like, I would like to focus on stories about women and who we are and what we do, because I think those stories need to be told more. Mm-hmm. And I see some sort of some, um, I've seen other female playwrights. I've seen uh, playwrights of color. I've seen other types of playwrights kind of, box themselves in more to try and be more palatable to whatever imagined white male artistic director they're trying to be more palatable to. And they cut off what really makes them them. And I've seen people who haven't done that. And they're the ones that seem to be going on and doing great and amazing things. So be whoever you are in this moment in time and embrace the stories you want to tell. Is that three? (laughs) That's three. Do you feel like, um, is that changing? I know that there's a lot of talk right now, I mean, within Hollywood, which I know isn't exactly the same, but they're, um, I think they, they kind of echo a little bit, like Hollywood sets the stage for other forms of media to follow because it's so visible. Um, maybe I'm completely wrong there, but like, there's a lot of talk about more equality, like Oscar so white and, you know, Meryl Streep, Meryl Mm -hmm. Streep is problematic, but, but (laughs) talking about like, um, like the whole, we'll ignore for the sake of this conversation, we'll ignore her statements on like, she is a person of color. She's wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry. I just, I can't believe. Yeah. That was just just like, I read that and I'm like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Meryl Streep. Yeah. You're so great. But right now. Yeah. Yeah. But like, she's really talked about a lot. The, you know, women getting paid less for leading roles or, you Mm -hmm. know, any roles in Hollywood. And then we can add on to that and say, yes. And women of color and men of color also are paid less than white men in Definitely, you know, definitely paid less than white men and also paid less than white women. But yeah. I kind of feel like we're starting to see a shift there. Like, and maybe this is just what I'm paying attention to. So we have like Star Wars with a female lead and, mm-hmm. you know, movies like I haven't seen it, but like Joy, which features a female entrepreneur, single mother doing her thing. Um, right. So I kind of feel like we're we're seeing a little bit of shift towards different points of view do you think that that's maybe accurate and is that also translating into the theater world where these um where playwrights can feel more free to express who they are without pandering to a specific kind of art director does that make sense yeah i think it is true at a certain level i mean the biggest thing going on in theater right now is hamilton and that's all people of color playing the founding fathers and it's a rap musical and it is awesome. I still haven't listened. Oh, you should. I know probably like the entire, uh, my fellow artistic director is kind of purposely not listening because everyone's been telling her how wonderful it is. Mm. And she's kind of like got hit that point where she's like, I can't anymore. Yeah. So I understand that, but like, that's, that's the thing everyone's talking about, but how is that translating like down or, trickle down diversity, I guess, um, it probably works just as well as economics, but, um, (laughs) (laughs) and, and there's, it's, it's weird because I don't think there's a lot of overt problems. It's just so much institutional graft and bias. And so you need people to constantly point stuff out. Mm -hmm. Um, the consistent statistic with uh, women in theater is that, um, women, uh, only write 20% of the plays that are produced on um, American stages. Um, and some people are even starting to get into how, uh, how much, uh, I want to say screen time, but stage time certain characters have. Um, like Marsha Norman said something along the lines that like, you know, only so, I forget the statistic on this and now I feel bad about it, but like only so many 
lines spoken or a word spoken by a woman, spoken by a woman and written by a woman. And it was just a really small, mm. small percentage. So, but there's a lot of more higher profile examples of people out there. But I also think there becomes a complacency because everyone be like, look, there's Hamilton. We're all good now. Right. And it's, yes, there's Hamilton. And how are you doing color conscious casting in your plays? And how are you looking at how your season works? Um, there was this big controversy. I guess it's still going on right now in Seattle. Um, there's this little teeny tiny performance um, theater doing this uh, new play called That's What She Said. And the playwright, uh, Courtney Meeker, uh, took the top 11 produced plays in America um, as listed by American Theater Magazine, which excludes Shakespeare. And it's just sort of like these are the top plays happening at regional theaters across the country. And she just took excerpts of all the things women say in these plays and put together a piece portraying how women are actually portrayed on stage and oh, sort gosh. of examining like, are they just helpmates? Are they just mothers? Are they, you know, there's one play that doesn't have any female characters in it. And all she did was just thumb through a script and you could just hear the pages turn. And um, there's a controversy about it because she didn't ask for permission and therefore she's getting a lot of cease and desist uh. letters from those playwrights who don't want their work used in that way. And the playwriting world, as it were, is very has blown up about it. We'll just put it that way. So it's sort of like intellectual property versus feminism and an interesting arguments that have not necessarily been on those levels before. That's really interesting. I hadn't heard about that. Um, and it makes me wonder, it makes me wonder, you know, like we have, I don't know, the portrayal of women in, in media is just, it's problematic. Yeah. Um, and that's a, a really interesting way to examine it that I don't know, I wouldn't have thought to do, which I guess is why I didn't do it. But, um, wow. I'm Like, as, as you were talking, I started thinking about, you know, I always think about what I'm consuming, but I don't always think about it extraordinarily critically. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think I have noticed like a trend in, and I don't know if this is overall what's happening or if it's just um, kind of what I'm choosing to immerse myself in, but I have noticed like a lot, lot more um, people of color being portrayed much better, you know, more than mm -hmm. just um, the token person of color, um, you know, people with real characters with real substance. I know that like Marvel's Ag agents of shield is uh disputed <laughs> right. I like it overall but one thing that I've always really liked is that it has a diverse cast of characters and they do all sorts of different things um mm -hmm. and I don't know I don't know about theater enough to be able to think about like critically about like what am I seeing when I go to the theater because I don't right I don't go and it privileges very specific types of stories like to bring it back to geeky stuff, and you're just you mentioned Marvel's Agents of Shield, but earlier you mentioned Star Wars. Like I had a really bad week in early January, and like I just went to see Star Wars: The Force Awakens again because I was just like, I need to have a story that I mean, not that I am a you know scavenger in a faraway land in a galaxy far, far away, but like it was just like I needed a story that was satisfying to me that felt like I could relate to it because I mm -hmm. was just having it was just a bad week and I was just seeing a lot of things that I was just like ah um and it just sort of like so I I understand that and so with people of color you just want to be able to see yourself on screen or on stage you want to be see something that actually is like you as opposed to someone who is the person that someone thinks you might be mm -hmm. um there was a great article in American theater magazine recently about te television specifically versus theater. And it said that theater people talk the talk a lot about diversity and we talk about intersectionality and we have all the buzzwords and we know what we're doing, but we don't actually do the work. Whereas TV doesn't talk well about this at all, but they're actually putting on stuff that, you know, is diverse and is actually including writers of color and, you know, characters of color. And it's, it's an interesting interesting dichotomy of like we can say all this stuff but we're not actually doing it 
they can't say anything to save their lives, but they're actually doing it. Right. And what's what's actually better. So. So I'm curious, how are you applying these lessons to your theater group? Um, we are very intentional about our selection of plays. Um, our first production is a play of mine, just because if you know you start a theater company, you're going to be the playwright. You're going to do the first production, and then <laughs> the other person who started a theater company is going to direct the first production. But um, for our readings, we've always been making. We've always made sure that we have uh, voices of color. We've always made sure that our actors were very color conscious in our casting. Um, one of the things that both Katie and I believe in and our company believes in, um, we just brought on a new managing director, uh, Kent Wilson, who's a um, gay man of color, um, um, partially because he's just he's one of the smartest people we both know, but um, to provide additional perspective. And uh, it's we just want to make sure we're not being obnoxious about it. And we live in Miami. Um, and I'm sure you feel like this in Phoenix as well. Like Miami is minority white. Um, it's like there it's I think over 50 percent of the people that live here were not born in this country. We have the highest percent of immigrants in the country, even higher than New York City. And the theater that we've been seeing, at least the English language theater, um, I'm not as well versed in the Spanish language theater because my Spanish is really terrible. <laughs> and that's too. something I need to work on. <laughs> so like I, I acknowledge that it's something I need to work on. But um, it's very, the English language theater is very much whatever, you know, is the exact same English language theater that's sort of playing anywhere else. Um, there's some exceptions to that. Um, Ricky Martinez at New Theater is very, very good about sort of bringing in uh, Latino voices, um, but it's it's problematic and people don't necessarily want to be talked to about it because they get into, well, I don't want quotas or whatnot. Right. And it's, but these are the people that are in the community where we live. Like, and if they don't see themselves on stage, why, why should they come to your theater? Why should they donate? Why? why do you do a play about um, African-Americans only in February? Like, don't just, don't just assume like, let's pander to, you know, the black community during, you know, black history month and then expect them to come to the white plays. We do the 11 months of the year. Like it's not. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it's just, I think a lot of people, I think intersectionality is hard. Um, I think a lot of times it's liberal white people who are not as liberal as they think they are. And I'm sure I sometimes get into that too. Um, and I think it's all the other stuff that you're doing just to keep the doors open is a lot of work. Like we're, again, it took us four years to get to our first production. It's a lot of work doing this, like the marketing and the fundraising and all the grant paperwork. And sometimes you just get to the end of the day and you're just like, I want to put up a show I want to do, but you need to think about where's the intersection of what I want to do and what the community needs. Well, and if, if it's not, I would assume if it's not filling the community's needs, yeah, (laughs) you're in trouble, right? Like if nobody shows up, then Mm -hmm. you're going to lose all your grants. Like, yeah, exactly. Um, And I think particularly among People who don't know Florida, there's this perception that Florida is all retirees. And I'm sure that's the case in some parts of Florida, but in Miami, it's not. I mean, not that there isn't a huge, like there is a huge population of retirees, but you can't just depend on people who used to live in New York to keep your theater going forever. Right. You know, that was probably a good business model 20 years ago. It's not really a good business model now. So, and it's, you know... I mean, I am less so now, but when I first started out in in Miami and just working in theater, I remember like people going, why don't the young people go to the theater? And it's sort of like, I'm a, I'm here. So can we not, Hello. (laughs) can we like, can we not do the weird tokenizing thing? And it be, it's like, what, you know, that, it's like there's nothing that speaks to me. Like mm-hmm. there's nothing where, you know, if I'm a poor broke college student, I don't really need to hear about wealthy people in New York who have fabulous lives and amazing apartments that are 
you know, always the entire, it's like, well, this is a TV problem too. It's like, how do people actually live like that? But right. Um, <laughs> I but, couldn't afford know. to live like that. And I have a good job and right. Yeah. You <laughs> know, it's, yeah, it's just sort of like, it doesn't relate. Well, and even, so I'm going to really reveal part of my horribleness. I don't love Shakespeare. Like, That's and part fun. of that is probably because I've never seen a good production. Like I've, mm-hmm. I've read Shakespeare in high school and college when I was forced to. And right. I've, you know, like, okay, sure. Like I've watched the movies, but I've never been to a play and experienced the d- dynamicism and, you know, what's going on and mm-hmm. cadences and like all the stuff that really play into Shakespeare. But like, Maybe now I'd be inclined to go, but in college, if someone had been like, you want to go to the Shakespeare play, I probably would have been like, nah, like I'm, I'm really yeah. not interested. And there's a lot of bad Shakespeare out there. And oh. I, I, have, I have committed <laughs> sins against Shakespeare, so I'm not immune to this. Um, I have committed many sins against Shakespeare. But poor like, Shakespeare. Poor, poor. But it's sort of like, I think people get this sort of on a lot of ends of it, there's this sort of reverence for it that becomes incredibly counterintuitive. It's sort of like this was the, you know, Marvel Cinematic Universe of its day in a lot of ways. And I know we all know that, but we don't treat it like when we do Shakespeare's actors, we are actors with capital A's doing Shakespeare with a capital S. And we don't really get as, you know, and there are many people who don't do that, but like we get really caught or we get caught up in really terrible concepts. I remember I saw a Macbeth that had, um, um, oh, it, the witches were in, it was some sort of postmodern, not postmodern. It was some sort of like post-apocalyptic Macbeth and like witches were in cages. And instead of saying their lines, they were like gnashing the cages around and then that there was a video of them saying their lines above their cages and I was just sort of like why am I here <laughs> what am I doing like why is this a thing this was <laughs> not a good yeah. evening yeah um and it's just you know I mean there's so much terrible non-vital stuff out there and I think Shakespeare attracts a lot of the sort of non-vital terrible stuff because people feel like they can give it to art as opposed to like let's just tell a story and play with you know character but not so poor Shakespeare poor Shakespeare (laughs) (laughs) so it's really really interesting to me like this is going to sound really obvious I think in hindsight at least to me but Like all of the problems that we're facing in the tech world are things that I hear you talking about in in the theater world, you know, because I I worked for a software company. I you know, this is this is my my thing. But like it's it's exactly the same. It's exactly the same. The struggle for like different perspectives and having different voices heard and encouraging people to be themselves and not pander to an audience like it's all the same. Yeah, I'd be really curious if the 20% statistic holds across different, not genres, media, I don't know, what is the word? Industries, that's the word I'm looking for. Like, that's sort of like 20% women, 80% men. Like, that seems to be the threshold we cannot cross. And I wonder if it's the same elsewhere. Tech is, well, tech really depends, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Women in technical roles, I think, is probably right around that 20% mark. Um, But if you Mm -hmm. count like Apple with um, women in technical roles in retail locations, it goes up. But like, you know, it, it might, you know, and especially I don't know if this is also true in the theater world, but in the tech world, I read something this morning from a venture capitalist who was like, well, my wife wants to stay home with our kids and so I'm not going to fund a, a company run by a woman. And it's like, but what? just because that's what your wife wants doesn't mean that's what every woman wants. Just like there are men who want to stay at home with the kids and who have no desire to go and work outside of the home. Like it works yeah. every which way. And making an assumption based on that N equals one equation is absolutely mind boggling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's nutty. That's just, that's insane. Isn't it weird? Yeah. 
Yeah. And there's this sort of expert. We don't all do femininity the same. We are individual people with individual lives. And so that's my, you know, like I have this show and I, I am an advocate for people to be who they want to be or who they are, you know, like, and I don't care what that means. And I identify as a woman. I've never like, I've never thought twice about that, but like still I, I got married two and a half close to two and a half years ago I haven't worn makeup since my wedding day you know I I wore a dress a couple of weeks ago for the first time since my wedding I you know I, I brush my mm-hmm. hair I don't flat iron it or curl it very often like but I'm still mm-hmm. a woman right oh that's such a there's such a thing on the sort of like police of femininity sometimes that happens um and it's just sort of like oh I yeah I'm sorry, I'm going to get ragey. Do. <laughs> but it's sort of, you know, how, like, you want people to be okay to be, like, if some, I have friends that are very, very traditionally feminine and traditionally feminine ways and love to do makeup and love to do sort of a lot of those things. And some of those things that I do do, I call my concessions to the patriarchy. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> it's sort of like, okay, I got to go to a meeting. I know people won't respect me as much. I'll put, you know, it's just more of mm-hmm. a, like, I get my foot in the door sort of concessions to the patriarchy. But uh, recently, um, I, uh, me and a friend of mine, also in the theater community, who's an actress, um, were sort of, I want to say femininity shamed for not being appropriately feminine enough. And like, it, both of us were like, wait, wait, what? <laughs> Um, and it wasn't, I don't think it was intended. It was just sort of like, well, wouldn't you look so, don't you know, you would look so much better if you were wearing colors? <gasps> don't, you know, like you just look so pretty when you put on that kind, when you wear high heels and it's just sort of like, yeah, but mm-hmm. I don't feel, I mean, me personally, I'm five ten already. I don't need to be six twelve. <laughs> <laughs> Six twelve. <laughs> I don't need to be six feet tall. I'm pretty okay with the time that I am. Like it's not, you know. And it's and again, it's coming. They're coming from a place that they love this stuff. And I try to remember that that they love this stuff because it's other women. Because I think if a man told me this stuff, I would just punch him. <laughs> but, like it's other women, and it's sort of like if a man. It, but it's like you can't we all do femininity differently like i am arts and crafts femininity other people are you know like you're not you don't suddenly turn in your female card just because you're not portraying femininity to a certain ridiculous ideal and um it's much harder again for my friend because she's an actor and so like she has to be you know castable in a certain light and it's you know so sometimes she plays the game but when she's not on an audition or out networking or be somewhere professionally she just wants to be who she is yeah and there's a lot of that too with you know like tone policing like why are you talking to me that way like we I don't know about in in your spheres but in mine it's like well we're told to speak up we're told to stand our ground we're told to you know to defend positions for, you know, customers or for the software or whatever the goal is. And then when we do that, we're told we're too aggressive. And, um, you know, so it, it also, it's not just the way we look, it's not just, you know, the, Mm -hmm. the shoes we're wearing or the way we have our hair, it's, it's our attitudes or it's our, the way we comport ourselves as well, ourselves as well. And that's really, really frustrating to like, you can't win right now. We can't win. No, you can't. I just had a thing where I was um, directing a, a short thing and uh, one of the actors in the piece just did some weird little microaggressiony things that I couldn't quite tag as microaggressions until I saw him doing it to an actress of color that we were also working with. Um, because I just, I didn't, it just didn't register. Like it just was such a like, and I was like, oh, Wow. I'm trying to think of something specific, but it's just sort of, it was just sort of condescending tone of voice. Um, When I work with people, I try to be really positive and upbeat. Um, My best friend calls me like Leslie Nope. 
So, <laughs> you know, like that is just who I am. Like I, we're all in this together. You know, it's, we're not, no one's doing brain surgery. Like let's just get together and like have as good a time as we can. And I try to do stuff like process all stuff organically and be really cheerful about things. And, um, when I, I just, I didn't get the respect there. Um, because I think because I was doing it in such a positive, upbeat way, whereas if I had just sort of told him, I need you to do this, this, and this, it, he would have been fine. He would have been gone with it. But instead he sort of gave notes to actors, which is a no, like the director is the director. You do not tell your fellow actors what to do. Um, so the theater people listening to your podcast would be like, because I've told people that and they were like, um, and it's sort of like, but I couldn't register it. It took me forever to figure out that this was happening until I'm part of it. I was like, tired, but it was just sort of like, really? I, it's so hard. Like, it's so, it's so insidious and so always there that you don't even notice it sometimes. I've heard it. Um, someone started calling it mic, not microaggressions. Someone started calling microaggressions background radiation. And I think that yeah. that's so like, if you have an idea of what background radiation, like high levels of background radiation do to people like, Oh, like mm-hmm. maybe your hair starts to fall out and you, you know, bad, yeah. bad things happen. And that's exactly, yeah. that's what microaggressions do is they just, they just kind of slowly wear you down over time. Mm-hmm. So what do you do in situations like that? May I ask how you handled that one? Um, I did not handle that as well as I wish I had. Mm. Um, I look back at um, things like that too. Like, oh, why oh, didn't I do whatever? Part of it was because I didn't recognize it. It's sort of like it happened the day it happened. Um, and I didn't even recognize um, there was some mansplaining um, and there was some white splaining happening. It wasn't until I heard the white splaining that I really figured up the mansplaining was happening. Mm. Cause I just didn't catch it. And then I also really didn't catch either of them until the next day after I had a full night's of sleep. Mm-hmm. And at that point I'm like, eh, it's really a little too late to go back. Um, some of the sort of like other really egregious stuff, other people corrected that wasn't towards me, but towards one of our actors of color. So I don't feel too terrible on that. Like it got covered. Um, but I wish I, in that specific time, I just sort of, I spent, I'm still kind of angry that I'm like, why couldn't I catch it at the time, girl? But it's, it's hard. And I think that's an important thing for people to recognize is that it is extremely difficult because even when it's really blatant, sometimes it's Mm -hmm. like, I don't think that really meant what it meant. And you just kind of go on and then you think about it, you know, the next day or whatever. And you're like, wait, no, that, that was not okay. And mm-hmm. and that's for really blatant stuff, let alone right. kind of these low level insults that are happening. I totally understand how that could happen. And the thing is, is I don't think he would recognize it if even if he got pointed out to him. Like, I don't think it would have, you know, I don't think it would register. Like, that's the other thing that I'm noticing with certain, certain things where I try to bring up stuff. Um, I'm thinking of a specific instance right now where I was trying to address some class issues. Um that came up in sort of a theater discussion. And this was not even a microaggression thing. This was uh, with another playwright about play that this playwright had written. And I was like, okay, speaking of someone who's actually lower middle class, here's some of the economic realities of that. Um, but I just think you need to touch and base it in your play. And it just sort of gets, I got so much pushback. And I think it's just because they don't want to acknowledge, like there's such a, um, people are so, so comfortable in their privileged silos. And I think there's a real desire to keep those silos together and their perceptions of themselves as good liberal people. Um, That's such a good way to put it. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Specifically in the theater industry, like everyone is a Planned Parenthood donating Barack Obama supporting Right now, almost everyone's a Bernie Sanders supporting. There are a few Clinton supporters, and that's a huge, crazy-making fight on my Facebook page right now. Oh, no. <laughs> like everyone, but everyone's incredibly liberal, and but they are liberal to the point where it's comfortable. Right. Um, and some people are really interested in issues of social justice, and some people just really aren't and just want it all to go away because it's more comfortable to be like, I support, you know, 
whatever policies I support and not think about how I as an artist perpetuate cycles of oppression. Mm -hmm. Well, we have so far to go. Yeah, we really do. And I'm sure I do it. Like I've, I've been called out. Like one of my favorite moments in my trajectory as an artist, um, was uh, back when I was in college and I was, you know, blind white person, privileged white person that was blind to my privilege, as you do sometimes. Um, and Robert O'Hara, who's this amazing African-American playwright, called me out on something that I had said. I had said something along the lines, like, I wish I had an ethnic heritage, which I know sounds racist now, but I didn't recognize it at the time. Mm-hmm. And he flat told me, no, you have a heritage. Your heritage is the heritage of Shakespeare and Arthur Miller and Tennessee Williams. That is yours. That is your ethnic heritage. Embrace that. And it just sort of like the light bulb went off over my head in terms of thinking about these things. Um, And I'm so thankful for that. Um, So I know other light bulbs can go off and I try to help people's light bulbs go off. And it's, you know, you know, it's not up to Robert O'Hara to go and teach everyone, obviously, but I'm just glad that moment happened because I think everyone needs to have that. Oh, crap. Mm-hmm. I'm not doing what I thought I was doing. I'm actually, oh, whoops. I'm part of the problem. Problem. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh, and it's, everyone could get better about realizing where they're part of the problem. Yep. I, um, I actually really love being corrected. I don't love mm-hmm. being wrong. But um, one person who's fabulous at this, um, I did an episode quite a while ago at this point um, on transgender etiquette and Mm -hmm. a friend of mine consented to come on the show and let me ask her like the worst of the worst questions that she gets so that Mm -hmm. like because people don't know like they just they just ask questions without realizing that maybe they shouldn't. Mm-hmm. And so um, she's very good. I've I've said some things that were unintentionally kind of discriminatory. And she she always when she catches it, she drops me a line and says, hey, Lean, you said this thing. And it gives me a chance to like publicly go back and say, I said this thing. And what I meant was this other thing. And that is what I should have said. And mm-hmm. um, it just reinforces that in my head. Like, right. You and know, I think. There should be room and call out culture for people to like sort of acknowledge where they've failed and move on. And I think that's really where it becomes strong. I mean, that's where intersectionality works is sort of like we're all in this together. How can we all help each other and recognize our own faults? And I I get that. Like, I don't want to make this something where it's like, yes, the people who are oppressed need to teach all the people who are not oppressed. because That's also problematic. Yep. Super problematic. But it's sort of, you know, people, it's like, okay, yes, I've said things that I should not have said, or I just, I love the fact we should all be trying to learn and grow as much as we can and, you know, keep on getting better. It's sort of like, it's a, it's a journey. You're not going to ever be social justice. Perfect. Um, no. Oh, I was getting ready for my badge too. Oh, I'm sorry. Ugh. But it could be like a brownie thing where you get like social justice level one and you get a full patch and you sew it on your brownie stash. You get social justice level two. Oh, that <laughs> needs to be a comic. That's amazing. I love that. I love that visual. Yeah. You know, just, I see this like little girl, like her hands on her hips and that sort of triumphant kid pose. Yes. Yep. Social justice badge one. <laughs> Did I it. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I think, you know, I think that the the best thing I've learned as an adult is I've learned how to step kind of outside of myself and I've learned how to apologize. That's something mm-hmm. I wasn't very good at in my youth. And I think that that's one of the most valuable tools I have. Right. I agree. It's it's so good to be able to apologize and catch yourself, you know, and and bringing other people along too. like you you spoke about transgender issues and um a friend of mine has recently is transgender and has recently undergone transitioning um and this is a friend of mine that I've had for a while that my parents have known and so like I'm helping them figure out how to do this in a way Mm -hmm. like and as I get better at it I help them get better at it like other people I know are sort of like have ever known Francesca has only ever known Francesca is Francesca and that's a different thing but it's sort of like I do a lot of the name corrections I do a lot of the they're very good about not misgendering 
but it's the name thing that catches them up Mm -hmm. a decent amount of time. Um, because it's someone I talk about, it's someone who's in my daily life. And so it's like, Oh, how, Oh, right. Francesca, how's she doing? Um, and it's just sort of like, it's, and they're getting a lot better about it, but it's such an interesting, it's just interesting because it's not something like growing up with super liberal parents, again, white liberal parents, but liberal parents, like they've always been of the opinion that gay people are people and have always sort of had gay friends and friends of color. And this is sort of, this is new and foreign territory for them. Mm-hmm. And so watching, helping and watching them grow and watching the scene where I've where I have failed in them. So it's just an interesting, like, all right, okay, be better about this. Right. Yeah. I I actually have a childhood friend who, I guess it's been about a year ago, emailed me and, and told me that they were transgender and I was like, okay, cool. And, um, you know, can I tell my mom? And they were like, yeah, tell your mom. And I told my mom and, um, yeah, that's also been an interesting thing in figuring out how to, because it's someone, for, you know, 20 years, they had this pronoun and this name, and now they have a different pronoun and a different name. And my brain isn't always as plastic as I'd like it to be. And it, right. it's like, you know, okay. And especially like, I do find talking to my husband because my husband didn't know this friend and still has not met this friend, but mm-hmm. like, you know, talking to my mom and people who have known her, you know, it's like, Oh, wait, we've got to we've got to totally revise the way we speak. Um, And that's I mean, it's unfortunate that that's a challenge, but it is a challenge. Right. It is. Um, And it's it's interesting because you mentioned that it's like totally reframing. You wish your mind is more plastic. And I find. uh, Yeah, I find I'm not as good about this as I'd like to be. Um, But you work on it constantly. You, You get better at it and. Hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> Always do better. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're pretty close to an hour. Was there anything else you wanted to talk about today? No, this is good. I'm all about like social justice warrior badge <laughs> one. Like, you know, yay, social justice badge one. I badge like it. Two. I want one. <laughs> yeah. I want to make a design for this now. That's a really great idea. <laughs> well, Andy, how can people find you online? Um, I am on Twitter as at Andy Arthur. Um, my website as a playwright is andyarthur.com and it's spelled A-N-D-I-E for various like Andy McDowell. Um, I am also my theater company, Lost Girls Theater. We are on the, uh, the Book of Faces. We are on uh, the internets as lostgirlstheater.com. Um, if any of you are playwrights and we're always looking at scripts, so send stuff that fits our mission your, our way. Um, and if you're in the Miami area, our next, um, our next reading is going to be in April of a play called Electric Persephone in the Scorpion's Den, um, which is by Carolee Corthron. And it's a retelling of the Persephone myth set in the 1970s, um, heavily infused by Jimi Hendrix. Oh, wow. So it's very much like a rock retelling of the Persephone myth. Neat. Yeah. Well, all of those notes or all of those links will be in the show notes and you can find the show on Twitter at less than or equal. If you had feedback, suggestions for guests or would like to be a guest, please go to relay.fm slash LTOE and fill out the contact form. If you have a few minutes, it really helps the show if you can leave a review or rating on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Until next time on an Internet near you, I'm Aline Sims for less than or equal. <laughs>